Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. And we'd like to welcome everybody back to another Football's Family podcast. And I'm kind of, uh, as y'all know, I'm a nerd. I'm about football history and and the stories of, uh, of of the teams. And I'm telling you what, I'm about to nerd out because I got a special guest who has a book coming out. Or is it already out? It's already out. Okay, so I'm going to have to get a hold of it. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Gary Myers. And on September 12th, my book, Once a Giant, A Story of Victory, Tragedy, and Life After Football was released. It's about the 86 Giants and um, how they've dealt with the challenges, mental, physical, emotional, financial, uh, those challenges that occur in life after football. And um, I was, Jeremy, I was there interview Parcells, Belichick, Lawrence Taylor, Phil Sims, Mark Bavaro, Carl Banks, Harry Carson, Phil McConkie, et cetera. Uh, the list goes on and on. And uh, thanks so much for having me on your show. No, I, I, Mr. Gary, I'm glad you came on. Uh, we, uh, we had to find the right time. It just so happened to be eight 30 on a Friday morning or nine 30 for you in white plains or, or in New York. Yeah. Um, I'm just glad to be able to do that. Now, growing up, I, uh, my first experience with the, with the giants, with that team in particular is of, of all funny things. We didn't get it a lot of games down in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. We we got one game, well, actually probably two games a week on Sunday and then one on, on Monday. I didn't get to see the Giants much, but I was introduced to them through Tecmo Bowl. And if you ever wanted a football team that had a defense, there were two teams to pick. It was the Giants or the Bears because it was coming off right. of the 85 Bears. But the Giants had something that the Bears didn't have, and that was that insane – linebacker or two linebackers really that would come around the corner or right up the middle harry carson and and uh lawrence taylor uh, what brought you to to write this book i i've been wanting to do a book about uh life after football and the impact that this game has on these players when they get into their 50s and 60s there's been a lot written and said about CTE yeah. say in the last decade. Um, and obviously that's a very, very serious issue, but the, the problem that these players have goes way beyond, you know, CTE. There's just, you know, mental health issues, there's financial issues, and then the physical issues that come with playing such a violent sport, you know, for an extended period of time um, in, in the NFL. And then, this is my sixth book and it's my first one about a New York team. And having grown up here and lived most of my life in New York, I've always wanted to do a book about a New York team, but I also wanted it to have national appeal. I just didn't want it to appeal to giant fans. So this 86 team is one of the two, three, four best of the Super Bowl era. Oh yeah. I agree. I agree. And it had so many big names on it. And the issue that I, really focus on this book could really pertain to any team from that era, be it the 86 Cowboys, Seahawks, Browns, you name it, because 
although I write about the Giants, it really is shining a light on the issues that all these players from that generation are facing now that they're in the late 50s to late 60s. So uh, I was inspired by two things. I wanted to do a New York, a book about a New York team, but I also wanted to do a book about life after football. And I wanted it to have, to resonate nationally that people wouldn't say, oh, I'm not interested in the Giants, so I'm not going to read this book. If you're interested in football and you're interested in the impact it has on these players' lives, once you've long forgotten about them, um, that was my my goal in putting together this book. Now I don't know how personal and and again you you can tell me when to when when's enough's enough with some of these questions and I, it won't offend me. Um, Ask away. I'll oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, w- with my profession, I have to be careful about what I say about people without permission. So I I I want to give you that same uh courtesy uh cte just right off the top of my head you you dealt with a different type of football shoot shoot the 80s were different than the 70s and the 90s were it's just different eras we understand that we understand that that's not a problem but cte are are some of the gentlemen that you that you've talked to dealing with today well there's some that feel that they have the symptoms of it as you know it, it can't be 100% 100% diagnosed unless until you're, unless you're dead posthumously. Yeah. yeah. And that's awful. Uh, yeah. Um, there, there's a lot of studies being done and tests being done now on, on players. Um, Leonard Marshall of the giants is convinced yeah. he has it, but again, and he only recently made the decision that he was going to donate his brain after he passes um, to, I think it's, Boston University, maybe that has has been at the forefront of of this issue. Um, but Leonard decided that he's going to donate his brain for scientific research, and um, he, he thinks that he has it. And you know, truth be told, I, I think that all players from that generation uh, have some residual. Uh, issues, mental issues, um, you know, whether it's post-concussion syndrome or dizziness or sensitivity to light, because as you said before, Jeremy, this was a different era with different standards. A concussion protocol, if you said that in the 1980s, people, what are you talking about? You know, we just come to the sidelines, we get dinged or get our bell rung. And all they really did was say to you, do you know your name? Can you count to five? Do you know what stadium you're in? Do you know what day of the week it is? And if you go four for four, they go, okay, you're good. Go back in the game, even though yeah, today I, those players would be out for weeks. Yeah, I, re- I remember I remember that because, like I said, I started following football actually after, and, and you will have to correct me on this, I believe it was 1980. 586 season was that the Broncos Giants Super Bowl yeah it was the 86 season the game was played in January of 87 okay okay thank you thank you um I remember the next year I started following football more more you know just like when I am now but that that game by the way Phil Sims was just a master just a master he diced my Broncos it was pretty pretty bad but I remember watching those games 
in whatever Tennessee could I can get here in Tennessee. Uh, and they say, well, he has a concussion. He'll be back soon. I mean, it, it's like we thought a concussion would be like a sprained ankle. You just – yeah, you couldn't tape up your brain, but you could go play through it. Yeah, when they say they'll be back soon, if you suffered in the first quarter, they meant you'll be back at the end of the first quarter. That was soon. That that's that's something would would happen again. I, I'm getting off your book, but this is fascinating. Right. to me. that's okay. Um, it's fascinating to me. This is something like with Troy Eggman, uh, UCLA. Uh, I don't I don't really know a lot of his UCLA uh, career, but I imagine he had concussions there. But I know when he came to the Cowboys, he played mm-hmm. through a lot. Steve Young, Steve Young, that's yes, right. sir. He played through a lot. Uh, I believe with the Bucks, but I definitely know with the 49ers. Yo, well, concussions ended Steve Young's career. And he had an insane, but he was a guy. The, the the thing I remember most is like Jason went and running without a helmet. Now, if you have your helmet ripped off, they're like, nope, plays over. And that was a different time for your Giants, for that team in particular. Uh, you were talking about some of the, and, and Bill Parcell being the coach. Uh, that was some of the nastiest. And I'm not saying this in a negative way. This is a positive statement about them. Mark Bravaro. Uh, I remember watching him as a as a tight end. I wouldn't want to tackle that dude. Mm-hmm. I mean, John Riggins once said, or no, it was it was uh, Larry Zonka. What said it would be smarter to hit the person than to be hit. Mark Bavaro took that to heart. I mean, you go over the middle, and there's Mark Bavaro. You're not going to hit him. You're going to say, "All right, you you win, bud." But you had you had missiles and rockets throughout the defense. Uh, I'm I'm really surprised that you don't hear a whole lot more about that that era with concussions. Well, I mean, you've you've had the issues with uh, you know Dave Dewerson and Andre Waters and Junior Seau. Oh yes, yes you have taking their own lives, and then you know their brains were donated, and they were all it was all diagnosed with CTE, and, and certainly they had mental issues that led them to taking their own lives. Um, Jeremy, unfortunately, I think as time goes on here, um, there'll be more players coming out and, and and talking about how they're suffering. I mean, hopefully, they'll all seek help and and find some kind of um, yeah. resolution, and that there won't be any more tragedies. But I, I think, and I named three players, and and there are more who have taken their own lives as a result of. Um, concussions that they suffered and the standards were just so much different then. I mean, this wouldn't happen today. At least you like to think it wouldn't happen today. Well, it happened with Tua last year. It happened with Tua and I'm like, come on, that poor kid. Uh, When you notice when his hands are like this. Yeah. But thank you for going. That just to me is fascinating with your, with that particular team that you're talking about. They're extra correct. And this is a positive family show. So I, I'm going to, excuse me, the, uh, thank you. The pollen is awful down here. Uh, this is a family show. So we're not going to talk a whole lot about their extracurricular activities, but I remember, uh, I didn't know a lot about Lawrence Taylor and his, what he did off the field until I, I heard several podcasts about it and read, uh, did he write a, I'm trying to remember. Did he write an autobiography? Yeah, he did. Okay, that was where I heard it from. He was honest about a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I respect that because when men, men especially, and you know this, 
we don't talk about our problems. Mm-hmm. We don't. And he he really what what about that team really? Uh, we, did you grow up a Giants fan or a Jets fan? Well, yeah, I actually grew up a Giants fan, but I I want to mention this disclaimer for any of your audience who don't understand. One once people like myself get into the business, um, the newspaper business and covering a team, all allegiance to teams goes right out the window. Now I can't speak for everybody else, you know, what's in the back of their mind. You know, I covered the Giants and I moved to Dallas for eight years and I covered the Cowboys for the Dallas Morning News. And then I moved back to New York and I was writing about the Giants and Jets for 29 years for the New York Daily News. The only team I root for are the Mets because I don't cover baseball. I had zero allegiance to the Giants, the Jets, or the years I was in Dallas to the Cowboys. You had to be objective. Totally. I And people would say, how do you do that? And I, I guess I completely divorced myself emotionally from football games. Now, there are certain players that I became friendly with, and I like to see them do well because it was good for their careers. It was good for their, their next contract. And I like them as people. And conversely, there are some players who I really didn't like that, you know, I was indifferent towards. Now, I never want anybody to get hurt, obviously, never, ever. But I never sat there and rooted for a team. You know, I never sat there and said, well, I hope the Giants get to the Super Bowl or the Jets can win that AFC championship game or or the Cowboys didn't make it to a Super Bowl in the years that I was there. Um, So, yeah, I was a Giant fan growing up. I went to my first game with my father. So the uh, Giants play at Yankee Stadium a couple of times. And I got hooked on pro football. I mean, I've always loved it. And I found it was the best sport to write about because I love the aspect of only having to write a game, about a game once a week. And then during the week, you get to explore all the different stories, whether they were, you know, delving into a player's personality or writing some strategy or writing about the coach or writing about some controversies in the locker room. It really tested your creativity to keep things interesting uh, Monday through Saturday when there were no games to write about. And then Sunday, became a story into its unto itself. And, you know, you get to write about that for a couple of days and then start the process over again. But I guess this is a long way of answering to you. No, no, no. Yes. Yeah. I was a giant fan growing up, but starting in 1978, I, I just, it didn't affect me one way or the other. And nor do I, did I sit there and want a team to win? Did you have a favorite player growing up? Um, yeah, Fran Tarkenton. He was only with the Giants yeah. for a few years, and they had zero success. Uh, never made the playoffs. It, it's so weird looking and seeing him in anything but purple. I know I it's know. so weird, and you think people people hear Frank Tarkenton. Frank Tarkenton was Michael Vick before Michael Vick was Michael Vick. Just yeah. keep that in mind. He was that good, and and just. But then I, I think he wasn't. He was traded, correct? Yeah, well, he got Fran got traded from the Vikings to the Giants. He right. spent a few years with the Giants. Tarkington to Homer Jones was is still my all time favorite combination, uh, uh, quarterback receiver combination. And then Fran got traded back to the Vikings uh, in the early seventies and made it to a, a couple of Super Bowls um, with Minnesota, but 
you know, obviously because the Vikings had never won a Super Bowl, um, they lost a bunch of them uh, with Fran. So, yeah, he was my favorite player uh, growing up. And um, I mean, I've had favorite players to write about in my career with newspapers. And I've, like I mentioned before, I had favorite players as people who I keep in touch with, you know, even after way after they've retired, but um, so many personalities, you know, you get a locker room of 50 some odd guys, uh, always something to write about. It sounds like Mr. Gary, that you, you took it from being a job to being personal when it comes to people and uh, that, to me, is a testament to you that they could tell not only was this a job to you, but but they meant something to you. Yeah, and I think it comes out in this book, you know, in Once a Giant, because um, there are so many sensitive and personal stories in here, Jeremy, that um, one of the most satisfying reactions I've received from the book, from about the book, even from people in the business is boy those guys really opened up to you they must have really trusted you that that's awesome that's awesome because you you can't just say hey can i interview you well i'm not going to tell you everything you had to cultivate that over the years didn't you yeah and and that's where i i had an edge in in doing this project is that now i moved to dallas in december of 81 and i moved back to new york in the spring of 89. So I wasn't even in New York in 1986, but by then in Dallas, I wasn't covering the Cowboys on a day-to-day basis. I was covering the NFL and the NFC East in those days was by far the best division. Yes. The NFL. So I wound up covering a lot of Cowboy Washington games, Philadelphia, Washington, Philadelphia uh, Giants, and then a lot of the Cowboy Giant games. So I probably in 1986 covered about half the Giant games. And a lot of the players uh, who were there in 1981, you know, mainly Phil Simms and and Harry Carson and some others were still there in 86. And then when I moved back in 89, Harry had just retired and George Martin was another one I should add to that list. But there was a lot of players in 89 that were there in 86 who I'd gotten to know during that championship run, including Lawrence Taylor and Carl Banks and, you know, Bavaro. So when I started on this project, it wasn't like I had to introduce myself to them or they had to get to know, well, you know, he's a good guy and I can trust him with sensitive material. I think I had that trust was already established. Okay. And when people read this book, as I hope they will, um, they'll, they'll see that come through. Basically, I don't want to say every sentence or every paragraph, but every chapter, there's something in there that I'm proud of that they trusted me with that I'd like to think that uh, not a lot of people could have got them to talk about. And uh, and it wasn't like I was pulling teeth either. I mean, they were very open and, and, and honest and forthcoming with me about some of the most personal things in their lives. When you deal with health or finances or or when you deal with those things with people in general, you get a lot of people just clam up. Mm-hmm. And especially when you deal with men who are, I, I hate the word alpha because I think that's disrespectful in some ways, but we get it. Alpha male. You had a, 
you, you probably had a vast majority of those men who would consider themselves alpha male. If they could become honest and just tell you, uh, yeah, this is what I did, or this is what's going on to me, that, that shows how much they trust you. And that, that to me is awesome. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stories in the book um, where players opened up to me about uh, drug use, um, yeah. the impact that the game has had on them <clears throat> emotionally and, and mental health issues that um, Curtis McGriff, who was actually on in, uh, injured reserve the entire 86 season, but was a key member of that team that was building to that moment, you know, told me in years after football that, you know, his wife was just telling him that you've changed, you know, you kind of have an anger management problem now. Not that he ever took anything, fortunately never anything with her, but he just noticed that he got riled up much easier um, in different situations that he used to be, you know, easy for him to handle. And um, there was an instance that he was like a teacher's aide at a, at a school in Northern New Jersey for kids who, troubled kids, I'd, I'd say, is the best way to describe them. And it was a small school. And one day, a, a, another teacher came into the classroom that Curtis was the teacher's aide for and said, hey, you know, you know, Johnny or Bobby or whatever is next door in an empty classroom and he shouldn't be there. So Curtis says, I'll go get him. And he goes to the door and it's locked. And he's banging on the door and he's getting angry and I, I mean I have the details in the book I don't know if he wound up getting the key or the kid wind up opening the door for him I don't remember exactly what happened and and Curtis was so and the kid was making a joke about it and Curtis got so angry that for an instant he thought about throwing the kid out the window and it was on the second floor so it wasn't like a ground floor window and obviously would have been a horrific outcome one way or the other depending on you know what happened with that kid but you know fortunately he caught himself and Jeremy the, the first thing he did was go down to the principal's office and resign he said these are kids that are coming here to be comforted and have us take care of them and show them respect and love because maybe they weren't getting it at home like they should have and Curtis said I, I I'm not providing that so I, I can't stay here any longer and he goes home and calls Harry Carson, who was the captain of that giant, those giant teams during that period of time and considers himself captain for life, which is one of the heartwarming stories that come out of my book is that players get in trouble in any way. The first call uh, is often to Harry, who is a very wise man and, and players rely on him for advice. And, and Curtis was telling Harry that, there's something the matter with him and he was thinking of ending his life and 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 harry implored him to get help and said i'm here 24 7 for you and um if these feelings don't go away you know uh let me know and i'll, I'll rush right over but he had by the end of the conversation he had calmed him down and uh, curtis went and got help and it, it, at some point in the not too 
not too soon, not too long after that, rather, he and his wife moved back to Alabama, where he's living a very happy life now. And he he found the right doctor and the right medication and and knows what his limitations are and doesn't put himself in difficult situations. But that those are the kind of things that that's great players opened up to me about that you just let them talk. And and then I asked questions to fill in the blanks, you know, to get like time periods and and things of that nature. But um, you know, my book is filled, and that's a heartbreaking story, but the heartwarming part of the story, Jeremy, is is how he turned to Harry Carson a teammate, you know, and, and let, him, let him know that he thought he was at a very dangerous point in his life where he can do damage to himself. And, and, and Harry talked him through it and was there for him. Um, That's incredible. And the fact is, I, I don't know Harry personally, obviously you do, but the mm -hmm. fact is that number one, he trusted Harry that much. And number two, Harry walked him through it. That that's that's incredible. That's incredible. Now I got just a couple more minutes, uh, sure. because like I said with Zoom, I don't want to pay them. I just don't. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> uh, I don't have a problem with Zoom. I just don't want to give them money. Uh, <laughs> two things. Uh, number one, where can we find this book? Yeah, I mean, this is in all the bookstores now, and um, the easiest thing a lot of people find these days. I love bookstores, but if I you do just want to sit at your computer and order it, you can do that on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. There's just a, you know, you Google it. There's so I, I check every, every couple of days to see where it's available. And there are websites it's available on that I've never heard of. So, you know, it's called once a giant, a story of victory, tragedy and life after football. And what I'm most satisfied about, it's, it's been out for two weeks. It's been an Amazon bestseller for about six weeks now, four to six weeks. So even before it was released, it was a bestseller. Uh, I did um, a book signing with Phil Sims in New Jersey uh, a couple of weeks ago. And we sold almost 560 books at one book signing, which um, was certainly a personal record for me. And uh, I think it came close. This is a bookstore that it's an independent bookstore in Jersey that gets a lot of big names in there. Uh, I'm not saying I'm one of them, but a couple of days after I was there, Matthew McConaughey was there. So it, it attracts those kind of people. And the New bookstore owner told me I came close to the record of number of books. So in New Jersey, it. New Jersey, they had a New York kid and then a Texas guy that talks about as slow as I do. That's interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. I love it. Um, you just talking with you again. I, I do appreciate your time. You come across as as genuine and as 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 respectful and loving, and I appreciate that because you don't get that in this society. You love what you do, and and if I can use that word love again, you love the people you talk to. Uh, I'm looking, and, and I mentioned this earlier before we came on 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 the air you have two amazing posters in the back one of them is about the catch with Dwight dwight clark when you get a chance i would love to have you on to talk about that because to me i don't remember that personally but i have watched so much nfl films that that yeah. is one of the things that you it was the play itself 
at the time, and this may not be the right word, was underwhelming in the sense he threw a ball and he caught it. But looking back and looking at everything that happened, that is one of the greatest plays in NFL history. Yeah, it was it was voted, and uh, I was part of this panel when we voted on the hundred greatest players of the first hundred years. That was voted number two after the immaculate reception. I can see that, but but you know, which, at the time you like he threw a ball, he caught it. It was yeah. you're like okay, but then doggone it, everything else on that play, they beat the they beat the Cowboys. Uh, Joe Montana with his at, with his response saying yeah. You just beat America's team. He said, "Well, you can watch the Super Bowl with the rest of America." You no, know, I, I, I know that that story. I don't think that part happened. You don't think that part? Oh, I would I love for that, that part to happen. I need that part to happen, Gary. I just need that part to happen. I know it sounds cool. I don't think Joe said that though. But um, I mean, I asked him about. It. He he kind of laughed about it. But the amazing thing about that play, Freddie Solomon was the intended receiver, and he slipped coming off the line of scrimmage. Really. Um. They had a timeout right before that play. And Bill Walsh said to Joe, basically, if things break down, don't forget about Dwight in the back of the end zone. That play, he ran to the back of the end zone, cut left and pivoted and ran to his right. And there's this film of the 49ers actually practicing that play in training camp because the Cowboys insist that it was kind of a schoolyard play that Dwight just improvised and that Joe was trying to throw the ball away. Cowboys to this day are convinced he was trying to throw it away. Um, Joe is backpedaling and kind of moving to his right with two tall Jones who is six foot nine yeah. <laughs> uh, coming after him. Joe pump fake did got too tall in the air on his way down, on two tall's way down, is when Joe threw the ball right over his outstretched hands. So it was almost like a basketball play where he faked his man into the air and then shot it over him on his way down. Um, so in this, in the catch book, which was my first book, I love that book, by the way. Um, I write about how that play not, you know, changed the NFL because it was a changing of the guard. Yes, it was. The end of the, the Cowboy dynasty so to speak even though they didn't win a lot of super bowls they were always in the championship game it was the start of the 49ers dynasty but also how that game affected the lives of the players who played in it and you know dwight you know um may he rest in peace yes um was just so cooperative and tremendous with me um as i researched and 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 did the interviews for that book that um I mean, he loved the idea of the book because it brought his name back into prominence for a while. Not that anybody will ever forget that play. No, if you're in San Francisco, Dwight Clark and Jerry Rice or Joe Montana and all uh, Ricky Waters, those guys are on you. Uh, this is what we call a teaser because when he gets back on, you will be primed and ready to hear about this. Do do does he did Dwight own uh, keep the football, or that you know of? I know that he spiked it. He did spike it, yes. And, you know, I, I think I covered that in the book, but, I mean, that was, you know, 15, 16 years ago that I wrote the book, so I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you I can't remember. I can't um, remember yesterday, so don't be embarrassed. Yeah, I, I don't remember whether one of the um, 
equipment guys got the ball back from him. That that's what I think happened. But um, now, uh, quickly, like I said, I'm about to about, okay, about go to go out. Did did the people in San Francisco get the power of that play immediately? I mean, they won the game. I get it. Or they they were going to win the game because people forget that there was another drive afterwards that almost the Cowboys almost won. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did they get the? Because, like I said, it was he threw a ball, he caught it. I mean, that happens in football. Did they get the power of that play at the time? Um, yeah, I, I think so because it got the Niners to their first Super Bowl, and they 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 beat the they hated Cowboys, and that's awesome. It was it was an amazing play, and then they went on to beat Cincinnati in the Super Bowl. Yeah. But you know, one the thing that people do forget about is the Cowboys still had like 50 seconds or so. And they nearly did it. And Danny White throws a slant to Drew Pearson. Eric Wright grabs Pearson by the back of his neck that today would have been a horse collar tackle and drags him down around the 45-yard line. Um, Cowboys continue to move. And then Danny White gets hit, dropping back, and fumbles, and the Niners recover. The Cowboys were in position where they needed about another 15 yards Remember, they're down by one point. They'd been in about another 15 yards to kick, which in those days would have been a very long field goal of about 50 yards by Raphael Septian, who was a, a very accurate kicker. Um, and Danny fumbled and they lost the ball. Um, if they kicked that field goal, the catch would have been remembered exactly as you're describing it. That was a pretty good catch. It was a clutch catch. It was a clutch catch. It was catch. just a catch. And it didn't win the game, but because it won the game, and then the historical significance yes. of the Niners accomplished. The historicals. He started. Dwight Clark started with that one play. Started an amazing run. You know, obviously had other teammates. I get that, but if it wasn't for that one play, we get it and we respect it. And your book, uh, I'm I'm looking for that too. Uh, your book would tell, but Mr. Gary, thank you for coming on, for gracing me with your presence. You are an incredible writer incredible person and i enjoy your stories and i will have you back on if i could sir anytime for you jeremy i really right. enjoyed this all right thank you for for coming on and for listening to football's family hey there sports history fan this is arnie chapman aka the football history dude and i wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the sports history network our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear and if you didn't know it already we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.